coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. It's not easy. I think it's a lot more challenging, especially to keep younger kids interested and engaged uh, these days. So it's a lot more, definitely a lot more work on my part, but it's incredibly rewarding when it happens and you see kids coming back to you or shooting emails a couple years later saying this was like, this was like the one class that, you know, I think about the most and it helped me out the most. And I'm still fishing these days. That is, um, that's what it's about. As George Daniel on his lead role as the Penn State fly fishing school instructor, Spring Creek's line control, line detection, and dynamic nymphing today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, who provides superior quality products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on price, service, and passion. And now, you can check out that Togans buzz for yourself. Right now, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you get a chance uh, and you are on Instagram and you haven't checked us out yet, right now at WetFlySwing, you can get a chance to ask a question for an upcoming guest. Check it out right now. Comment over there. Engage, connect, and let's get this rolling. If you haven't checked in on Instagram, let's do it right now. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the world, now in their 94th year. Deddy's mission has always been to supply the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select domestic tires. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash Deddy to grab your in-house flies today. That's wetflyswing.com slash Deddy. D-E-T-T-E to support this podcast and the oldest fly shop in the world. George Daniel is back on the podcast today to take us into Central PA and the Fly Fishing School, Euronymphing. We're going to dig into it all today. We get some insight into his masterclass, get the story of how dynamic nymphing came to be, and we get his go-to deep nymphing line. Plus, we get the inside scoop on uh, George's background in basketball, and we find out whether he could do the two-handed windmill dunk. Here we go. George Daniel from livingonthefly.com. How you doing today, George? Great, Dave. How are you? Good, good. It's uh, it's great to have you back on here. It seems like it's been an eternity since we last talked. I, I just looked back; it was episode fifty-five, and we're on uh, episode north of four fifty. So it's been about four hundred episodes, and uh, so I'm happy to uh, have you back on. I also want to hear what you've been up to since the last time we talked, which was probably a few years ago. Um, yeah, how things been going? Let's give us a little update in the last few years. What have you been? I know we've been through COVID, but what else has been going on uh, the last few years? Uh, last few years for my life is uh, definitely family. Uh, kids are growing up. Uh, boys twelve, girls fourteen, going on twenty four. So <laughs> it's uh, it's been good. It's uh, kids are they have their own social lives now and uh, interested in the opposite sex and sports and not so much with mommy and daddy. So it's it's been a different. It's been a turn, but uh, it's been good. Uh, I hear they always come back, or they usually come back. So that's that's right. So it's it's been good. But other than that, it's it, life's been great. Uh, I end up getting a. A full-time, uh, basically teaching position at Penn State University. So I am the 
director of the Jill Humphreys fly fishing program at the Pennsylvania oh, wow. State University. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a professor job. Uh, so it's pretty cool. So it's a, a professor of fly fishing. So it's been, it's been fun the last year and a half, a, a big change. Someone that has pretty much gone entrepreneurial uh, for the last 12 or 13 years of their life and now has a, a bit more structure, but uh, I guess structure is good. So I, I welcome it. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. I remember that last time we talked, I think you were just on the verge of potentially there was an opportunity there and I think we had George on the same year and then, uh, yeah, I, I can kind of see it coming. Now you're there. What's it been like? Has it been like, what is the the daily? I mean, I, I want to dig into that today, you know, a little bit just to hear what that's like, because I don't think every university around the country has the same program, right? Yeah, correct. Very few do. I mean, we're, we're part of kinesiology, but basically it's a, it's a phys ed course. Uh, so, you know, it's an elective and we teach like three different levels of it at Penn State. We have a, actually a minority fly fishing program. We have a basic program and then we have kind of a more advanced program. So I teach a total of seven sections uh, and then we have another instructor teaching one section. So basically eight sections, uh, 100 or 25 students per section. So, you know, we've got, uh, yeah, we've got close to 200 students uh, enrolled in fly fishing every semester. So it's a, uh, and there's still a waiting list. So it's amazing. A, it's a pretty popular class wow. in our program. Wow, that's so cool. Do you get people that are coming there just for the fly fishing program? Do you ever hear that, that that's happening? There's one or two, uh, but they're usually the worst students. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. no, there's there's a number of people that do come to Penn State uh, just because of the the university, the town, but also because of the, the resources we have uh, outside within a 15, 20-minute drive from campus. So it's uh, you do get a, a few of those students for sure. Gotcha. Cool. Well... Yeah, I mean, the section is interesting because, you know, just thinking about how the program is laid out, I'm just interested in that a little bit. Like if you have somebody, let's just take it to the advanced course. If somebody's coming in and they're at the advanced course, what does that look like? What does their term look like there? So when we say advanced, it's basically we have a prerequisite. So either you have to take the the basic course or you have to have adequate experience, fly time and fly fishing other than that. So basically this is just still very fundamentals, but just taking like one step further. So like in the basic class, we're just talking about basic casting line control here. We may actually start talking a little bit about like double hauling, shooting line, uh, just things of that nature. So it's not overly advanced. It's just one step above, I guess you could say novice, but it's, uh, it's, it's a great course. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what does, and I know you don't necessarily do any guiding, but you kind of do teaching on the side when the time allows, right? Is that like, what would somebody get if they had a chance to get into that program where they, you know, come to, you, you teach them? Is it similar to what they'd be learning in the classes or another level? No, with the classes, I, I when I teach, I, it's like two completely different instructors at, at Penn State. It's, it's very, very basic. Um, and you're kind of teaching to the average where, where I have my private lessons, I still do probably too many of them, uh, to be honest with you, I just full this summer, but they are coming in. Like I deal with usually some very, very skilled anglers. So I, I deal with like a lot of like competitive youth anglers that are on the U S youth team or just very skilled anglers that want to maybe get like maybe five to 10% better. Uh, so it's, it's a very focused type of scenario. So that's what I enjoy a lot. I, I like working with very advanced anglers and just trying to find, and it, sometimes it takes a couple hours, but just trying to find just one or two things that is going to get them just a little bit better 
because um, as you know, when you're when you're advancing, the learning curve at first is is pretty is pretty high. But as soon as you start getting skills, like the the rate of return when it comes to skill sets, it starts slowing down. So, but I I love especially if people are having hurdles like casting distance or just your own nymphing, but just getting them just over that hump to make them a little bit better. So that's what I enjoy doing. And I do a lot of that. And I do a lot of clinics. I'll be in West Yellowstone uh, for Big Sky Angler for a couple of days doing clinics. I'll be down at Silver Creek Outfitters in Ketchum, Idaho for a couple of days doing clinics as well. Uh, so yeah, and I'll be in other parts of the country as well, but I'll be making kind of a Western trip uh, to do a little bit of fishing and then also do some workshops. Right, and workshop. Are you doing anything? Are you doing a lot, quite a bit on the East Coast as well, or as much? Or it sounds yeah. like, yeah, you got a lot going on the West, but that's just kind of you take your Western tour and then circle back around. Correct. Yeah, good. Yeah, we, we've definitely been chatting with the, we've been doing a lot of stuff around that West Yellowstone this year. So it's been interesting to talk to some of the, some of the folks that have, you know what I mean? There's a lot of big names around that you probably know all of them, but like Bud Lilly's, right? And all the, absolutely. Old, yeah. Um, it's been cool telling some of those stories. Um, but what is a so what does a clinic look like? Let's let's take this um, big sky. So how is a clinic different than say, um, I mean, what else could it be? Right, like a school, for example, or a like a one on one with you. Well, like usually when I think about schools, I'm thinking like multiple days or long days. With the clinic, this is kind of like a, a six hours, five to six hours. So it's kind of like a, a one to two hour kind of crash course inside, kind of go over the the basis of the theoretical knowledge, and then basically go over just over the the basic of basic information. Then we get right to the stream and actually work with uh, the, the, the students one-on-one. -on -one. So I don't like, I don't like standing up. I mean, I can lecture, I lecture all day long. So I pretty much, we go over like an hour at most of information and then we get the students right on the water and then we just work with them uh, on all the different aspects of like most of what I'm doing will be Euro nipping. So we'll spend most of the time just, breaking it down from the casting, shooting line, uh, you know, drifting lightweight flies, drifting heavier flies, learning to drift, learning to swing, uh, the hook sets, uh, playing your angles, all that stuff. Uh, we try to get done in a pretty much like a six hour course. Six hours, boom. So you do it and then, and then you're out. That's pretty cool. So, uh, and I want to talk about that a little bit more on just, you know, I think dynamic nipping is, you know, the book that you wrote, I mean, it, it may be the biggest name. It seems like it, right? You hear a lot of Euro and different names for things, but we've talked about this a number of times over the years. What is your take on, you know, when you wrote that book, Dynamic Nymphing back in the day, right? What was your thought there? Was was Euro, I mean, like, describe it for us that we're not in on everything. Like, how would you describe the Euro game versus, say, everything else you hear out there? Is it all the same thing, just little tweaks on one message? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of evolved definitely in the way I th I think about things. When I wrote about that, when I wrote the first book, I I talked about Czech nymphing, Polish nymphing, and and the fact is, is like every country had their own little take, but usually it's because the water types that they fished. So it's just it, it would be no different than someone Euro nymphing in Pennsylvania versus Michigan versus North Carolina versus out west. So basically it's all the same thing. It's just, you're just making minor adjustments, just like you're saying, based on the water type. And sometimes just as important, the fish species that you're after. Right, right, right. And what are the water types that you could cover? I mean, with, when you think of nymphing, is it pretty much like, what can't you fish with a nymph? I, I don't, man, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I, I, I feel, 
there hasn't been a, a body of water, I wouldn't feel comfortable fishing uh, that I've hit so far up to this point. There you go. So even like a pool, you can even get into pools and fish pools with nymphs. Absolutely. I'm doing that even more uh, these days. Just uh, the way that we are using these like ultra thin mono rigs and so forth. I actually feel more comfortable fishing slow moving pools with that than what I do with a traditional indicator rig these days. Wow. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's great to know. So, I mean, and that is always the thing, I think, uh, pools, right? Water types. I mean, if somebody's coming up, let's take it to your home. Let's go to your home water. I'm not sure. What is the, your area? Are you fishing if you're at home, you know, something that, what is the rivers around your area? I mean, the, the bulk of my fishing are the limestone streams in like North central Pennsylvania. So I've, I've got streams like they're called Spring Creek, Big Fishing Creek, the Little Juniata, Penns Creek. Those are kind of like the big four. But then there's there's a, a lot of other bodies of water I do fish just with also within that same area. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, these are the ones we, and we've talked about some of those over the years as well. So so if somebody's heading out there and, you know, they're in the area and they're heading out to this, what is the what is the first thing you're telling them? Let's say they have some experience, they've but they've got some struggles with the, the nymphing. You know, where do you start somebody out? I mean, I guess you just kind of analyze their casting. Is that the first place you start? I mean, when it comes to when people come to, to visit, usually I would say, and I say this over and over again, but like 80%, 80% of the problems people have with euronymphing is a lack of line control uh, or strike detection. And that is directly due to casting slack and just not making a good presentation. So it's just simple little things without geeking out, but it's just, it, it's about body position. It's about reducing your overall movement with your shoulders and your bodies while you're casting and just really minimizing anything other than just like a short little drift of the forearm and a tap of the wrist, but keeping your body your head, everything tight and just making a short, compact cast stroke. And when you, when you're able to kind of limit yourself like that, the cast that you make, you shoot like these little lasers in the water where you make a cast, the line and leader and that cider that your indicator that we call cider is off the water. It's under control, like right from the very beginning, the key with your own nymphing because the drift is short is to have control and strike detection at the very beginning of the presentation. When people Euronymph, a lot of times uh, when, they, when they're fishing, they're saying, well, all my strikes occur halfway through the presentation or at the very end. And it's not that because it's not that fish aren't hitting the fly in the top end. It's just they've got no control. So my job most of the time is to clean up the front half of their presentation. Uh, and sometimes, you, I, you know, depending on the person, you know, sometimes type A personalities, they just want to try to overpower, complicate things. Uh, it might take like an hour to two hours of breaking them, basically breaking them down and rebuilding them. And for some people, like they, they get it within five minutes. Uh, but really, if you can get the cast, seeing the strike and detecting the strike, that's it, a piece of cake. But it's just getting control from the very beginning. So that's that's what I spend a lot of my time on. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And and what about the flies? I know you've written a lot about flies and fly tying. You know, how important is that when you're out there selecting, let's say we're in Pennsylvania hitting something, a stream, you know, is that critical? Like, let's say you got the cast and that down. Is it, how important is the fly? Yeah, it's, I, I don't think they're as important as what most people believe they are to be. Uh, most of the time, you know, I go back to my competitive roots. You know, I still hang out and talk with a lot of great comp anglers and usually like good comp anglers will have a list of maybe like six to 12 flies 
that they like, sometimes like darker colors, lighter colors, maybe some flies with a little bit of flash, but basically no more than like a dozen patterns, tops. And then just tying those in a couple different sizes and more importantly, different weights or different size beads. Other than that, it's just like I tell my students at Penn State, size, shape, and color. You know, fish that are feeding on the surface with dry flies, definitely they tend to be a lot more particular about what they eat. But with nymphs, if you get something that's small and somewhere, you know, subjective or basically that's close enough, uh, they're going to eat it. And there's only a few times if, if, if there's like really unique hatches or different insects that are very unique physically, then you might want to tie something more specific. But most of your mayflies like PMDs and blueing olives, I feel you can easily imitate those with just variations of like pheasant tails. Right. Yeah. The pheasant tail again, that's the fly that just pretty much different colors, different weights, sizes, like you said. Let's take the pool. Let's say if you're if you're at a pool, talk about that. How are you setting up, um, you know, for and I guess maybe talk about some depths and things like that. But how are you fishing a pool with the kind of the euro uh, kind of uh, indicate? Well, just the euro setup. Well, usually with pools, I mean, when I'm I'm hitting pools is is when I'm either stuck at a pool or when the fish are on lockdown and and they're just holding in the slowest deepest section of the water. As I I mean, I, I tell my students at Penn State, like there's a couple sections where we'll do field trips and there's a couple bridges, walking bridges that go over these pools and they walk over these bridges. They look down in these slow, deep pools and they can see these fish laying on the bottom. And I kind of, I kind of explained to them most of the time that is like, that's fool's gold uh, because fish that are typically at the bottom of the pools and they're not active, you don't see any tail move or fin movement. Like those are going to be very difficult to convince to eat the flies. The fish that you're normally after are like in the heather runs off the edges where you see some tail movement, some fin movement. Those are players. Those are fish that are going to be a lot easier to fool with a fly. But when when I must fish a pool, when those fish are like if it's a early morning on the cold morning and those fish are on the bottom, basically I'm, I'm going, I, I'm usually using larger flies. Flies like a, I hate to say like a mop or like a big stone fly, but something that's larger that might get their attention. But the, the system that I'm doing is just, it's all level monofilament with most of my Euro fishing. So I'm fishing like level six pound test. Uh, so there's no fly line. There's no Euro line. It's basically like 35 to 40 feet of like level six to eight pound test monofilament. I have a cider and then my tip it off of that. But what I like about this system is basically you can cast because the system is light. You're fishing fairly heavier flies. You can make a cast and you can cast like 35 to 40 feet. The flies, when they drift, when, when you, when, when the cast is made, the flies will drop quickly down to the bottom. The big thing with pools is pretty much as long as you can within limits, getting physically within like one or two rod lengths of the rod tip. And essentially you're just trying to fish directly into the rod tip. And again, this is very difficult to explain without a visual, but essentially when you're casting, you keep the rod tip pointed upstream at the cider. And as the flies are dropping, you don't engage, you don't move the rod tip downstream. You just keep the rod tip pointed at the cider and you just slowly strip in line or do a hand twist retrieve. And all of a sudden that you're reducing any sort of, tension on those flies and the flies are able to basically sweep under the rod tip and under like basically a 90 degree angle and you just hang them that's all you're doing you're just hanging them and then you're just basically hanging the flies underneath the rod tip you're 
supporting the, the nymphs basically like an indicator, but because they're compared to what compared to an indicator where you actually have this large surface area in the water that's causing drag. The only thing that's coming in contact with the water is often your thin tippet. And most of the time I'm fishing like five to seven X tippet. So because of the smaller diameter tippet and your sliders off the water, like your flies are able to drop, you hang them and you can just belly crawl these flies right on the bottom with a really nice, slow presentation. Uh, and I have found that because especially like in pools, they're, they're usually a little bit more spookier, more on alert, you know, dropping big, heavy balloon indicators or like big thema bobbers. That's going to, so this is a much more delicate presentation. And in my opinion, as long as you can get within one or two rod lengths, it's a, it's a far more effective tool. So when people talked about Euro nymphing at the beginning, it's, they said, well, it's, it's, it's designed for faster moving sections of water. That's true. That's where it was. That's kind of where it originated, but this technique with the way people are refining it and going thinner and thinner with their systems, you can effectively fish any water type, especially slow moving pools these days. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's a great explanation there. So, and are you, you know, often like seeing these fish and kind of working that fly to them or how does that look if you're not able to see the fish either way? Where I'm fishing, there's only a few times the year uh, where I can sight fish most of the time you're just casting to likely good looking water and you're just looking for any hesitation. And one of the things um, with this ultra thin monofilament system is it's in, in the past, like even when we spoke at episode 55, you know, I was running thicker leader formulas. I was tapering, like maybe going like 15 to 20 or 20 to 15 and so forth. It's all level now. And it's, basically taperless and it's small diameter. And it's just that smaller diameter, it's easier to cast. And when a fish strikes, like you can often feel it. And then if you can't feel it, there is a distinct jump, like that thinner monofilament, you will see that line. Like anytime a fish strikes, it's going to jump. There's going to be a distinct movement where before with thicker systems, you'd be like, well, is that a fish or is that a bottom? With this, when the fish strikes that that thin system, like it takes a lot of the guessing work out, and that's why I really enjoy this ultra thin system. Right, right, that's cool. So that's the and what is the difference between say the, you know the tapered sort of leader versus just the straight? Like why why does the tapered leader not work as well as the, you know just like you're talking here? Well, first off, like when we started doing this stuff years and years ago, like we didn't have euro rods, so we had basically like traditional action fly rods, like. 10 foot four, 10 foot five, 10 foot sixes, rods that were designed to cast fly line. So these rods needed some mass. Uh, so it, it was very difficult casting long leaders. So earlier on, like, and also, you know, you needed that taper of that leader to kind of help cast the fly. But fast forward, now everyone's making these zero rods that are like two weights, three weights, but they're kind of like 10 car rods with a soft tip. But because of how soft these rod tips are, you can literally, you can, you could cast a level section of eight pound test monofilament. I mean, literally roll it, like cast it like a fly line without any fly attached to it because of how light these tips are, because you can cast this lightweight mass. So, and so because of the way that the rods are designed, I think it basically allows you to completely eliminate tapered leaders. Tapered leaders also have mass. I mean, they, one, they have knots. So especially if you're fishing longer leaders and you have knots, anytime you're hooking a fish, you're trying to make a cast, 
anytime you have a knotted connection going through the guides, it's going to create a bump. It's going to cause a distraction between either stripping in line or when a fish is being played. And then two, it's just long story short, it's, it's last mass. So when you have the line leader outside the rod tip, when your flies are drifting, that 15, 20 pound test, it may not seem like much, but that is actually pulling and lifting your fly that's in the water out of the water. If you look at the guides, uh, if you look at the monofilament going through the guides, especially with heavier monofilament, you're going to see in between each guide is going to be like sag or droop. That droop is literally a counterweight that's pulling. But with thinner monofilament, there's virtually and there's virtually no counterweight. And this is why now, like this is why you can fish like a size 14, like a size 16 nymph with like a 764 tungsten bead or even in some cases like a 332nd and you can fish that fly with like a 6x tippet in fast raging water and not need any additional weight because you have a thin fly that quickly drops and you have a, a lightweight system that eliminates a lot of the counter pull that your traditional leaders and fly lines created for you. Fly fishing is always in full swing at Drifthook. Let Drifthook fly fishing outfit you with the perfect assortment of flies to prepare for your next adventure. Everything from nips to dry flies, hoppers to streamers and their Euronip fly kits are pre-packed in a double-sided water-resistant fly box. These kits ship free directly to your door, ready to start catching some fish. If you're starting out or just looking for additional tips to help you catch more fish, Drifthook.com has over 50 instructional videos and over 200 articles to help you improve your fly fishing game. And I want to reiterate this fact right here that Drifthook has a great resource at the website. Matt has put together some awesome blog posts. And these aren't just flabby blog posts. They are packed with lots of great content to help you on your next adventure, wherever it takes you this year. With over 150 verified five-star reviews and a 30-day money-back guarantee, Drifthook's family-owned business has you covered. You can order right now at drifthook.com and use the code SWING at checkout to get 15% off your first order. That's Drifthook, D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K, drifthook.com, and you swing, S-W-I-N-G, at checkout to get 15% off your first order. You support this podcast in a great small company right now by checking out that link at Drifthook. So I'm kind of thinking as you're talking here, I'm kind of thinking a little about the history too, because I know you were in early, we've talked about your name has come up a lot of times, you know, just about the history of like uh, Team USA, right? I think you were there early on. And, but also Joe Humphreys, right? I mean, is this guy who, you know, is kind of bigger than life. You know, he's a good friend of yours. You have the whole history there. What is that? Tell us about Joe and maybe even before the Euro stuff, like before this came in, I can't remember how you got involved in it, but like, what was Joe doing back in the day before the Euro game was going on? Is his nymphing similar? Yeah. Well, as Joe will tell, tell you and tell me, uh, he was Czech nymphing before the Czech Republic was a country. And that's <laughs> right. And, and, and that's very true. I mean, it's, it's same thing. I mean, ever since uh, Skews, uh, the gentleman in England basically stuck his middle finger up to the angling world and said, I'm going to sink a fly below the surface. When you read and, and this is one of the things I think, you know, I, I know a lot of the younger generations, even part of my generation, they don't want to read too much about history, but what you'll find is so much of what we're doing is just recycled from the past. So, if you look at Frank Sawyer, I mean, the, the guy who literally created the, the pheasant tail nymph, you read about, you read his book, Nymphing. I mean, he was fishing 12 foot cane poles uh, and long leaders on the chalk streams in England. So basically he was doing Euro nymphing, you know, 
back in the early 1900s. Uh, and, and Joe was doing very similar things. I mean, Joe, Joe was the first one to actually use monofilament. Uh, and he was using monofilament back in the 60s. And a lot of people in the fly fishing industry went to Joe and said, Joe, that's if it's not fly line. And they gave him a, a ration of BS and they really stuck it to him. They said, you're, you're not a fly fisher. So fast forward a couple of years, he worked with a, a company, um, I think McCullough, I think was his name, but basically it was Cortland Line Company. Um, and you, you talk about Euro lines, but back in the mid 1990s, Joe Humphreys worked with Cortland and developed what they called the deep nymphing line. Uh, and I still have a, and it, but it's, it was a 22,000 level fly line. So it's the exact same line that people were saying are, are modern Euro lines these days. But, you know, Joe was fishing a Euro line back in 1994, 1995 when it was created. So, yeah. So the, the thing is, it was just, for whatever reason, it caught on some places and Joe would do clinics and he would do trips out West. But at that point, everyone was so fixated on bobbers. Um, and I don't, and you know, without social media, YouTube, whatever it was, he was ahead of his time, but just like you can, you know, I mean, there were guys I've read about that basically created like Instagram, but it was like 10 years before Instagram became Instagram. So it was just timing. So Joe was doing all this stuff, but it's just, he was just too far ahead of his time, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That was an interesting time too, the early days of the nipping, like you said, when, well, it's been frowned upon for many years. It's funny, right? Even back in the day, even in the sixties, you know, and you had all this, but now it seems like, I mean, it seems like it's here to stay, right? I mean, people obviously nipping is, is awesome and populated fish, but the Euro nipping too, right? It's got this, maybe, I don't know. It seemed like it had this negative a little bit to some right connotation. Like, you know, I don't know. It's too easy. Like, what are your thoughts there? Have you ever heard that people say that before? Like your nipping is too easy. Cause I don't find it too easy. I actually think it's kind of hard to do. It's definitely hard. Uh, but I mean, I was talking about this with somebody else the other day, but I mean, I don't teach Euro nymphing with my basic class because uh, the reason why is one, I wouldn't say it's easier. It's just more effective. I mean, you're putting your fly in the strike zone where fish spend most of their time. But the problem is with mono rigs and so forth, there are, you know, surprisingly, there are a number of comp anglers out there that are really good at just chucking weights with a mono system. But if you were to put them into a situation on like the Henry's Fork or on the Delaware River and they needed to make a 60-foot cast with a drive fly and make a reach mend, there's so many people in like on our youth team. When I took over the youth team a year ago, I was surprised on how how poorly uh, the kids were. There maybe in the group of 15, we had maybe like two kids that were actually adequate casters. The other ones were pretty good nymph fishers, but they absolutely sucked at fly casting. So to get to my point is I don't teach Euro nymphing at first because when I did that the first semester I taught as an, as a basically a part-time instructor, kids caught fish and like, oh, this is great. And then as soon as you want to start talking about like dry fly fishing, Euro or streamer fishing, they're like, ah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good. Right. And so it gets them sucked in. And the joy about fly fishing is that it's not just, I mean, Euro nymphing is effective, but I tell you, like the, the most enjoyment I get is like fishing dry flies to rise and fish or actually casting it and retrieving streamers. Like that is 
And most of these kids, when they graduate, they're not going to be moving to trout water. They're going to be closer to like salt water, warm water, because there's only so much trout water in the country and in the world. So I want to teach them skills that are very transferable to more species than just trout. So that is why I don't really get into Euro nymphing uh, only until the advanced class. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think that, I mean, the evolution of anglers, right? It seems like everybody starts at one spot and then they work their way up through this evolution. I mean, what is what has it been like for you over the years? I mean, yours has been kind of public on display a little bit private. What does that look like? Like from where you started, did you do you see your evolution over from Euro back to dries and or whatever and and you know, all sorts of types of fly fishing? I mean, yeah. I mean, when I when I grew up in Pennsylvania, I mean I grew up in like the sticks up in the country north country so i never really did much your own much nymphing like when i was like six and seven so basically i had a seven and a half foot fenwick fiberglass rod that was pretty much my bait rod until probably like april, late april early may when we started seeing our first hatches and i could catch brook trout on dry flies as soon as that i could do that it was pretty much all dry fly fishing until the fall when the fishing stopped and then the fishing season was over so Grew up fishing dry flies, and then we relocated into central Pennsylvania where the fish, you know, they're not brook trout. They're wild, wary brown trout. And a lot of times, you know, your window of opportunity to catch fish on the surface is limited. So your best opportunity is to catch fish below the surface. And that's when I started reading Joe's book on trout tactics and, and learned and basically learned his form of Euro nymphing. Uh, and I did that until my early 20s and then got involved with the U.S fly fishing team and then started traveling and started picking up these tips and tricks, but got into Euro nymphing. But, uh, you know, I, am always back and forth. I, I'm a, I just like to tink around. So basically dry flies, streamers, uh, you know, nymphs, and it's not just trout too. I mean, I, I love carp. I mean, I love bass. I, I get into musky. If I live closer to the salt water, I would probably not have a job, uh, because I, <laughs> I think salt water is, just uh, especially the the warm salt water, like around the Keys, yeah. I could oh I could I could do that a lot more. But yeah, but I, I just I, I'm a tinker. I just love to do it all. That's right, that's right. And when you started, remind us again when you started connected to the Team USA. Who was the was that right at the start with like a, who was there when you kind of got into it? So when I was there, uh, Lance Egan was already on the team uh, like a couple years in, and then pretty much there were a couple. Uh, Jeff Courier was on a team. So besides Jeff and Lance, there were some other really good anglers, but guys that never, uh, I, I don't want to say it like, but guys that just kind of got on there just because of just, you know, it was a kind of a closed circuit. And then in 2005, they started opening up qualifiers. And that's when, you know, guys like Devin Olson and guys like Pat Wise started trying out and, and then that's when they started getting a, a stronger pool of, of anglers on the team. Uh, so I was kind of, I was at the beginning when they actually started opening up qualifiers and it was a, it was a great experience. I mean, something I wouldn't trade for the world. I had a good run, uh, but I just kind of, I kind of fell out of love with competition fishing after the first couple of years, you know, after I won a couple of national championships, I got fifth in the world. I thought it was going to be this life altering experience. And I kind of felt empty at the end. Uh, I never really liked competing, uh, but what I enjoyed was the people that enjoyed competitive fly fishing. So like high achievers. So it's, it's kind of hard to say, but like winning medals being the, like being called an, that. Right. The greatest fisherman in in the world on the planet. Yeah. And, 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 and there's no such thing as that, but, but that nothing to me, but 
but being able to like surround yourself with like the best anglers in the states and the country that was amazing and then more importantly i think i i love systems i love like missions so like having you know like just if i'm going to be fishing a lake in this world championship or in the nationals like preparing or trying to find the venues but i i love preparing and i love training uh to be honest with you i i, I love the process of all that but when it comes to competition i'm, I'm just as happy when it's over uh, i i like kind of leading up to it and everything it involves that's interesting so do you do you like the travel all the travel or not I love to travel because that was to me like I think the, the the most enjoyment I had was I think I competed for five years, but then they asked me to come back to captain for a couple additional years. But like my my most enjoyment is like when we went to Northern Italy the one year I was captain of the team. We would go out and we would fish the the foothills of the Italian Alps, just gorgeous country. And you know we would come back uh, and we were nestled on the side hill, uh, just. Like it looked like it was Switzerland, but it was uh, like you see, like on one of those little Switzerland commercials. But we were in Italy, uh, and the guys would be staying back. Uh, time flies, preparing for the next day. And as soon as we dropped those guys off, I would uh, there's trails, like and I would just go running. I would just run with my camera, and I would just run for like a couple hours, uh, run into villages, uh, get some cafes, uh, and then run back. But like. To me, like that was awesome because not only did I get to go fishing, but I actually got to experience the culture. And I got to do that in like the Czech Republic uh, and Portugal and some other places. But that's what I really enjoyed was actually the travel. But because when, when, when these guys travel to these world championships, you know, they're, they're, they're very focused uh, on the task. They don't really get to kind of experience the culture, so to speak, because you're on the water and then you're heading right back. Uh, and that's one of the things I, I didn't like at first, but when I captained for a couple of years, I absolutely loved uh, because I got to spend those hours after those guys uh, were off the water doing that. Right. That's pretty cool. And is, is that like trail, do you do a lot of trail running now still, or is that what that was? Oh, I, I yeah, I, I, I love trying. I mean, it was something that uh, when I, I, I run every day, I haven't missed a day. Well, I've missed three days uh, in the last 10 years. So really you've, you've run every day for the last, almost every day. Yeah, but it's God, it's it's usually two and a half to like four miles. So I don't run longer distances. Uh, but yeah, it was like two great. days. There was a kidney stone, uh, two, oh, right. <laughs> like, uh, and then there was a, a massive flu. But other than that, like yeah. three days, I, I've missed. But what's your secret? Because I mean, I think this is something I would love to get into, where it's like more regular. It's routine. It's routine. So basically, I read uh, one of the Navy SEALs books uh, years ago, but. Uh, and I hated running because uh, I was a basketball player. I the only way you, you get me running was actually with a basketball. Uh, but I, I read this book about like the seal train, the buds, and I just thought to myself, like this was like twelve years ago, eleven years ago. I was like, you are one of the most pathetic sacks of you know what. <laughs> yeah. I said, all right, you're just gonna find you're gonna do one thing, like find one thing that you absolutely hate, and you're gonna start doing it every day. And it oh, was wow. running for Damn. me. Cool. And I just start doing it and it's just like routine. So even when I'm sick, when I'm, if I'm like, if I have to wake up at two 30 in the morning to catch a flight, I'm still going to get my running. Uh, that's amazing. It's just, it's just routine. So do you do it in the morning, evening, or just whenever do you have a set time? Mostly morning, but sometimes if I, if I have travel or things do happen, if I have to, I, there's been a couple of times where I've done, I've done talks like in Philadelphia and I come home, I get back home at like midnight and I'll just, I'll just get it over with. I'll just suck it up for a half hour and just run and get back. But yeah, just get it done. 
So when you do the when you do the midnight run, does that count for the day before or the next day? Uh, the day before. So, <laughs> right, yeah. right. So you're doing another one the next day too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm waking up at six the next morning. Yeah. So yeah. That's cool. That's cool. You mentioned training and getting prepared for the Team USA and all that. What what does that look like? What does your training regimen look like getting prepared? Well, I mean, a couple of things was like you need to focus on your strengths, but also look at the venue that you're fishing. So I mean, I mean, are are you fishing? faster moving sections or you're fishing slower streams. So basically a lot of times I think like with some of these competitions, especially like in places like Portugal or maybe even like Spain, but there are some streams where, I mean, there are, there are streams that you could would almost consider to be kind of almost like a, like a racetrack. And then some of them are almost like a walking path. Like some, you just need to understand, like there's a time to be moving fast and with a high tempo. And then there's times where you just need to kind of slow grind things. And for me, I had, you know, I, I started getting into meditation a, a few years ago, but when I was competing, I was like a type A personality. It was like a, like a, a monkey brain just, and it, for me, it was, it was so difficult to stay confined into like one area and then just thoroughly walk, work the water. So like with the world championships in Portugal, the ones that I did pretty well on, and I knew the venue that was coming in there. And I knew one of my, for me, my biggest weakness was just learning to slowly and methodically work the water. It was painful, but I would just find streams around here where I would just mark off a section of water and just say, okay, this is a hundred yards. You're going to fish this in like three hours and, and that's it. Like, and you're not going to, you're going to make one pass. That's it. Uh, just just things like that. Uh, but just understanding the venue and then knowing your weaknesses and, and some of the things that you need to work on because it it's always easy to work on your strengths but when there's things that you're you know trying to cast under tight brush and small streams and, and so forth these are all things that you just you need to do and i still do this on a regular basis even when i'm teaching when i'm coaching when i'm fishing these days like i i, I write a daily journal and there's always a couple of things that i just think well i could have done this a little bit better so there's always, and that's what keeps it fun and enjoyable. And it kind of keeps me moving. You know, I, obviously the learning curve isn't as much as it was in the past, but I still feel now that, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a, a far better angler today when it comes to casting skills, knowledge than I was 10 years ago. But yeah, it's just, it feels good. That is. So what is for you? I mean, you've obviously you're teaching this. I mean, do you feel like you still have a lot to learn? Are there things you're thinking about? Because it seems like you're kind of at the top of the game, but right. You always hear like, Hey, there's always people you're always learning. Is that kind of what you mean there? You still have a lot to learn. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, I had to drop out from the youth team earlier this year because of just some family members having some medical issues this year, but staying involved with the youth kids, I mean, in the youth team, like it's it's really cool. Like every time that you you go overseas, like you're picking up one little technique, one little nuance. And you know, I we had one of the things that we did before I left was uh, we have a the world championships. The the kids will be in Bosnia this year, but you know, I know that the adult team medaled there, and uh, my friend Devin Olson also medaled individually there. So we had him come on and do a, a zoom presentation for the team. Uh, and then, but it was just, it was just interesting, especially within the last couple of years. I mean, Devin is like, it, when I talked to him like four or five years ago, cause it's been a, a little lapse in time since we, we spoke and listened to him talk, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's evolved immensely with, with what he's doing. And, 
And same thing with me, like what I, what I wrote about 10 years ago, there are some fundamentals and some principles that are still in place. But when it comes to like patterns in my rigging, it's completely different nowadays. So it's, it's always changing. When did the, when did that dynamic nymphing book, first, I guess, when did you, when did that idea come to write that book? And then when did you publish that? Well, the book came out in 2010, but it was, uh, it was from Jay Nichols from Stackpole Books. So he was the one that kind of, and a guy named Paul Weimer, who uh, had written some books. Uh, He was my boss at TCO Fly Shop after grad school. I worked at a fly shop for a couple of years, but after some of my exploits with the adult team, they're like, maybe you should write a book on this stuff. And I was like, ah, you know, I'm not going to write a book. I mean, if you talk to my 10th grade English teacher, they'd be like, (laughs) no way in hell this guy is going to write a book. And it was painful. I mean, that book was, uh, but it was, and I was like, you know, and then, you know, they spent some time with me. Like Jay would spend some time coming up fishing with me, asking me questions, fishing the water. And then basically like, he didn't tell me what to say, but he would just ask questions. And pretty much when he was asking, he was able to ask amazing questions. And that kind of started generating like this template. like, maybe there is enough here for me to talk about. And that's kind of how the book came about. That's it. And then what you're saying is now that book, even though a lot of the principles are, are still valid, you've changed from some of the ways that you fished than versus that book. Uh, that, Absolutely. That. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, this is cool. So, and do you have now? What do you got? I mean, as far as books, I'm not even sure if you've if you have other stuff. Is that something that you look at? And you're like, hey, I'd like to write another book, um, you know, in the future. No, I, I love. I mean, you know, I, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, so, I, I create a YouTube channel during COVID for my Penn State students. So I would do all these like silly little like just horribly edited videos, but some of these things like just experiences that they would have missed. So basically it's because we were stuck in, in COVID and they weren't able to do field trips and we still had to teach instead of doing these boring like PowerPoints and lectures online. Uh, I would go out and, and fish for a couple of days, film and do some edits and kind of just walk them through what they would be seeing. Uh, and I, I make more money on those things than I do anything else. And they're, and they're pretty easy to make. <laughs> But yeah. I enjoy writing. Uh, I love writing because uh, for me, writing is a is an exercise to the mind. It just whenever I write, it just makes me think a lot more about what I'm what I'm saying and how I'm talking about it. So I mean, I wrote Dynamic Nymphing. I wrote a book called Strip Set. I wrote a, another modern uh, another updated version on nymph fishing called Nymphing: New Angles and Tactics. And now uh, I'm going through my fourth round of edits, and probably in October. Uh, will be my fourth book uh, called The Evolution of Fly Fishing or uh, Fly Fishers Evolution. So it's kind of my modern view on how I am fishing with dry flies, nymphs, and streamers. Perfect. Great, great. And when is uh, when can we expect this one to be out, do you think? I think that's October, October, early November. And I do a good bit of writing for like Hatch, Online Mag, Fly Fisherman Magazine. And then uh, I'm, I'm starting to get into photography a little bit now. So uh, I actually had Todd Moen from Catch uh, Catch Magazine actually reach. So I'm going to do a, a whole feature on muskie fishing and my exploits in muskie fishing over the last year, kind of a, a photo journal uh, of my fishing. So it's it's exciting. I mean, I'm I'm just ex- into teaching and what I'm doing now as I was 20 years ago when I started getting into this. That's great. So you haven't so you haven't lost the um, 
the um, what's the, or the passion, right? You, it sounds like you still got it going pretty strong. No, I, I think too is just it's mixing up a little bit. So like the species changing things up, and yeah, you. But the the worst thing you can do is just doing the same thing over and over again and go into the same section of water. So sometimes I'm a creature habit. Sometimes I just have to force myself, like you know, like go to this river instead of that, and let's fish. Let's fish a section we haven't fished in a year or two. Uh, and that's, that's it. And then more importantly, fishing with new people every year. Uh, I'm definitely an introvert by all means, but, uh, I, I still, it's called, I guess you can call it professional development, but I still hire guides and like hire people to learn how they fish their waters. And it's, it's great. Uh, but, and I f- try to find people locally to fish with once in a while, like people who I think I can just, you know, benefit from, and then hopefully they can maybe even benefit a little bit from me, but just keeping it fresh like that is going to make this so much more enjoyable uh, for the long term. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake, and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between. Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Um, you had this, uh, I, I think at the Fly Tires Masterclass, I think you had some uh, information out there. Um, talk about that a little bit. What, what's that about? Maybe maybe describe your some of these patterns. You know, I think you're, you've got some of your main patterns. Talk about like, what is the master's class? Is this a, like an online course video? What does this look like? This was, uh, this was just a, a video production. Uh, we have a DVD. We also, you can download it uh, on Vimeo. But it was just, uh, this was shot like four and a half years ago, but just, uh, video, uh, some of my like top, I think eight or nine favorite nymph patterns. So just talking about just not tying them, but just talking about what, what's going through my mind when I'm tying them, like just fly design, taper, uh, design and so forth. And then showing you also how to fish them, uh, in a couple of different situations. So it was just kind of a fun project, you know, Jay Nichols, uh, my book editor, but also did all the filming and the editing. I mean, he did a, I mean, just, it's a beautiful, it's, it's a great, very well done. So it's just a, it's a, it was a fun piece just sharing some of my patterns and how to fish them. Yeah. yeah. What is just a quick little snippet on that? What would be one? I know there's a few patterns we would know about, but what would be one you'd pick out and say, Hey, this is a, a pattern you like and, and talk about how you might fish it. It's uh, the, the one that would be just, I call it the sunburst sulfur, but it's just a pertagon. So basically it's just a, there's really well-known PMD and sulfur nymph patterns called the split back so it, it, it has this very basically what this nymph is imitating is the the yellow mayfly that's starting to break out of the brown mayfly shuck and some patterns are these complicated they have these humpbacks where you have like a, a layer of foam for the wing case and then you have a, a bite over top of that and then they split the bite so you have a little bit of this foam like peeking out like it's highly highly complicated so just take it up like a pheasant tail putting some Coke daily on uh, tail fibers, taking some yellow holographic tinsel, folding that over for the wing case, and then maybe hitting it with some uh, glue or even like some epoxy and creating like this hard body. But you basically, you have this pheasant tail ish fly with this yellow bright wing case without all the other fuss in the muss. 
So incredibly simple, very effective. Simple. And then how would you fish that fly? Most of the time it's, that is a, that's more of a dead drift pattern. Just it's a, it's a, like a Pertagon style. So something that's just designed to be cast upstream, sink quickly, and just kind of drift as close to stream bottom as you possibly can. Nice. And are you in your class um, or out outside of the class, are you getting into like the entomology? Is that something that you is a focus for you? Or? We get into some basics. I mean, very, very basic. So just one of the things I want students to understand is that student or insects are bio indicators. So there are some streams that, you know, like on spring Creek and some of the streams that we do our field trips, you know, you can pick up the vegetation and it's just crawling and just explain to them that this is the reason why, like we have amazing trout fishing, uh, understand a little bit about the karst geology, like the springs and how, you know, we have a 365 fishery, like most places, you know, in the Eastern United States, you can't fish for trout 365 days a year because you typically have warm in water or the water gets too cold. So we'd go over etymology, we go over some stream ecology, uh, some geology, uh, and we go over, we talk a little bit about the trout species. It's, but it's very, very, very simple. Very simple. What is the difference? You know, you, you're up there. We've talked a lot. We've done quite a few episodes, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, all that area. Is Pennsylvania, I mean, how is it different? I mean, I guess there's overlap in the streams. Do you feel like there's just a lot of diversity there in types of fishing? Or what, what makes, you know, PA so unique out there? Why is it? It seems like it's always the, a hot name, hot topic. It's pretty good, but you know, we don't, I, I don't, I need to stop. We need to stop selling it because there's already too many people yeah. coming in, right? Just like everywhere <laughs> else. But no, it's that's right. Like, again, it's it's the karst geology. So we ha- a lot of our streams are spring fed. Yeah. What is the karst? Remind that the karst geology. That word, I'm not even totally familiar. So with what that is it? It's limestone. So like whenever you're doing like if you have uh, if you have acid mine drainage or anytime you have issues and you're trying to buff up the pH and put some water quality, better water quality in there. Often they will dump lime or put limestone rocks, which has a short-term effect. But basically lime kind of neutralizes a lot of the acid. It just makes the the water quality a lot better. So we have limestone, like our, our, the rocks, the, the minerals below ground surface is limestone. So when water, when it rains, that water will filtrate down through the karst geology into these massive caverns. And then with pressure, they're, they're pushed back up into the surface through springs. But because they are basically being purified with the, the, the lime, they come out supercharged, just like a, a tailwater. And that's why spring creeks and that's why limestone streams not only have cold water, but they have very nutrient-rich water. Gotcha. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so you guys, so you touch on a little bit of that just so people kind of understand what's going on because that affects, right, uh, insect hatches and all that. Yeah. And we've got good hatches. And then the other thing too, is it's the proximity, like within, within like an hour, hour and 10 minutes, like you have like a lot of unlimited opportunities for fishing where some places like you have to do a little bit of traveling, significant traveling to get from spot to spot here. Like you've got so much uh, to fish for, not only just trout, but bass and musky that you'll never be, you know, you'll never be able to do it in your entire life. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, we're going to take it out of here in, in a few minutes here. I just um, was thinking, you know, big picture. We've had a few episodes where we've talked about changes and, you know, like um, the environment and kind of like uh, climate change, stuff like that. And, you know, invasive species versus native species. I mean, do you see much of that? On, and do you guys talk about that? I mean, is, 
do you think about that much out there, like changes in, say, brook trout populations where, you know, you see muskie and things like that, where maybe bass will be doing better, right? Than, like, what's your thought there? Is that something that crosses your mind much? It does. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I know there are definitely cycles and trends in weather, uh, but there is definitely something that is abnormal uh, that is going on. I mean, and to deny that something is going on is just completely just denying the truth. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's alarming. I mean, I know a friend of mine, uh, Robert, a uh, guy from Virginia is a fisheries biologist, but you know, he was studying, I think he was studying smallmouth on the Yellowstone river in Montana. And I mean, every year they're finding that like the smallmouth are, are moving further and further up. And I think like last year, people were catching smallmouth in Lamar Valley, uh, on some of these. So like, it's not good. I mean, this is not a good thing. Um, and like, you know, there are places where I go on spring Creek where, especially even like on the lower end where it dumps into a warmer body of water, but I'm, I'm seeing sometimes bluegills and like large mouth and in like these slack waters off the side. So it's, it's different. So you're seeing it. So you're seeing it in in your your area too. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a tough, it's always a tough, uh, you know, uh, conversation to have, right? Because of some of the changes. But um, but I think obviously there's, you know, there's groups out there that are doing some good work. Do you guys have any? Do you, do you hear much about that? Or there's some conservation groups? Oh, we have. I mean, in, in like Central PA, I mean, we have a lot of organizations. We have like the Clearwater Conservancy. I mean, we have obviously Tron Limited and so forth. But we have a lot of groups uh and we also have a, a lot of the kind of the grassroots organization that are like you know teaming up and like doing water quality sampling on a lot of the, the headwater streams on like all the major drainages around here so we have a, a very active group of people uh and penn state is continuing to do a lot of research on just all that we have a, a pretty active fish and boat commission and department of environmental protection department of natural conservation so you know it's the research is being done. What to do. What yeah, to do exactly. It. What's Penn State like? What, what's that? Is that is that kind of like you walk on that university and is it, how's that feel? Is it a pretty good, uh, pretty amazing feeling working out there? I mean, it's it, it's a cool environment. It's, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's different. I mean, I, I love working at the university. It's just, but sometimes it's, it's difficult. I mean, I actually get less stressed like doing trips, like running clinics and workshops because i mean as much as people are into fishing like when people come to like me to do a lesson like a private lesson like they're already they're already sold on me they're like they're gonna we're gonna work i mean it's not saying that they won't ask questions or like second guess me which is what i expect from them but when at penn state like there is a there's a, a period of time some like maybe like three to four weeks where they're just trying to feel me out like is this guy for real like Cause all they know is that there's this tall lanky dude. I never, <laughs> right. I never let them, I never explained to them what I've done in the past. All they know is that you've got this tall dude that is just teaching fly fishing. And eventually some of them will do research uh, and they'll, but like the first three or four weeks, it's just, you know, you, you have to like earn their respect and that's good. And I enjoy that, but it's uh it's, it's tough at first. And then at the end of the semester, it's great. Uh, and then, you know, when you you know, have summer break and then when you're going right into the fall semester, like you're, you're starting all over from scratch again. So there's, it's not easy. It's, it, I think it, it's a lot more challenging, especially to keep 
younger kids interested and engaged uh, these days. So it's, it's, it's a lot more, definitely a lot more work on my part, but it's, it's incredibly rewarding when it, when it happens and you see kids coming back to you or shooting emails a couple years later saying, this was like, this was like the one class that, you know, I, I think about the most and it helped me out the most. And I'm still fishing these days. That is, um, that's what it's about. That's right. Do you find most of the kids that are coming through there in that program, they're just, it's like, um, you know, they're just testing something out or do you find some of these people are moving on and staying kind of in the industry sort of thing? I would say like probably like 70% of them are like testing the waters and like 30% of them are, are usually just there for the grade. Uh, but within that 70%, like there's, there's like, I would say in, in some situations, sometimes 20, 25% that really, really get into it. And, you know, that's, and that's, that's, that's perfect. And especially from, from a, a group of kids and most of the kids that come into my class have virtually no fishing experience. Most of them are like first time fishers, not just fly fishers, but just first time fishers. So, so to get like that segment of the population interested in the outdoors, and, uh, especially in this day and age when you're competing with technology and so forth, I think that's, that's, that's wonderful. That's right. That is wonderful. No, it's, that's huge. Um, Cool. Well, let, let's take it out of here. We've got a, a new segment we're doing. We're calling the uh, the Liar's Den segment. This is uh, presented by Togan's Fly Shop. We're, uh, we're going to have a few random questions for you. I kind of joke about that because I always think of the old... Fl- well, you have a, you mentioned TCO, but I remember the old fly shop, how, you know, to be like people kind of BSing about fishing. And sometimes they're telling fishing stories. That's always the joke, right? Like, how big was that fish? Um, like, what's your take? Tell me about TCO first, because I know you have a connection there. Is that something you're still connected with and uh, working with those guys? I mean, I, I do, I do some workshops and, and so forth, but there were just, uh, you know, Tony Gemmon, who's the owner of the company is kind of a, kind of a quiet guy. No one really knows who the owner is, but they, they always see the, the managers of, of these other shops more in the, the limelight. But, uh, those guys, I mean, they, they gave me my, my first start after grad school. Uh, they pretty much like Tony, like there's not too many employers. When I, when I joined them in 2006, I was also starting with the U S youth or starting to compete. I mean, I was, I was traveling for six weeks and he basically gave me six weeks of paid leave, uh, to compete. Uh, obviously in the long run, it turned out good for him, but he didn't have to do that. So Tony was an amazing boss and he really, you know, looked after, after me and helped me out immensely during that time. So, so in that respect, I'm very, very loyal, uh, to the company and, and Tony for just getting me to where I am today. Amazing. Amazing. So, well, let's start that on, on the uh, on the fish story. So, do you have a crazy fish story that we might not be able to believe? Is there any? Have you? Do you have? I know Joe's got some over the years, right? Some some giant fish stories. What's your? Do you have one that's kind of unbelievable or anything you think about occasionally? It's not like so unbelievable, but it, but what was really cool, and it's not so much a fishing story, but it has involvement with the fish. So, one of the things we we did usually a couple of years ago with our kids before they got involved with sports and the opposite sex is we would, we would actually do a lot of snorkeling and so forth on the river. And there's, there's a railroad trestle where we do these snorkels. And my wife would, I think she called it like monster, monster Island or whatever. Cause it's kind of like an Island in between these trestles, but there's musky in there too, but we would go in there and rummage around and find bass and just actually locate these fish. But this one day uh, I'm in there below head below the water, snorkeling around holding my breath and I'm rummaging around this big root system and I kicked out something. And all of a sudden I see the shadow 
come around the corner and it stops like literally like 12 inches in front of my face. And it was, it wasn't a massive musket, but it was like a 30, oh, wow. like, like a 35 inch musket, like mid, Damn. but just scared the piss out of me. I mean, just wow. did you're looking at like eye to eye sort of thing? Eye to eye. Like it wasn't even scared. It, it literally shot. It, what it looked like? What, what was it? <laughs> Could you tell what it was thinking? I no, I had no <laughs> idea. But it just looked like this guy was just like, just get the hell out of here. This is my spot. But it was just, right. but that was, and you know, as soon as that fish came around, like I, I started screaming like a, just like a little child started opening up my mouth. Right. Start, yeah. And then jumped above the surface, spin out water. And my wife's asking me like, what, what the hell's wrong with you? And yeah, a, a muskie <laughs> shut amazing. up on me. So that was pretty cool. I'm glad you said muskie because that's something, I mean, like you, you do a little muskie is like, what is your, t- tell me again on that, on the muskie. What, why do you love the muskie? Cause it's, it's such a challenging fish, right? To catch it's a challenging fish. And, and I, I don't, I don't post anything like this whole thing with uh, catch. I'm pretty excited about it cause it's, it's not like, uh, online, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to be like all my, my muskie shots. And like, uh, I just don't post anything on muskie fishing for the most part, because it's, it's like that movie fight club. And one of the rules about fight club is you don't talk about fight club. So when it comes to musky fishing, there's only so many spots. So many, I just, I just, I just don't talk about it as, as much. Uh, but it's just, it, it is. It's a challenge, and it's it involves like suffering. I mean, there's days where I've gone out for days, you know, two or three days, fishing from sun up to sundown, and nothing, not even a sign of life. And then the system changes. A pressure system may move in or move out, depending on the moon cycles. And then like I'll move four or five fish. And it's just like, and they're, they're like these ghosts in the, in the darkness, they just appear. Uh, and it's just, and then you can hit that same water over and over again and not see anything again for the next couple of days, but it's just, it's just involving. And I think the thing I love too, is just fishing large flies and like the guys who I know that guide for muskie, like in Wisconsin and so forth, they'll tell you like the best babysitter is just throwing on a chartreuse 12 inch fly and then just watch it swim. And it is, it's just fun casting these big streamers and watching these things swim through the water and occasionally seeing a shadow, seeing them disappear or seeing something hit the fly boat side. And like, it's just those short bits of excitement make up for all the lost time uh, before that. All lost time. That's cool. And and on your kids, you mentioned at the start, we you know about that. And I have got a couple of young kids, a little younger than yours. What's the? Uh, are they? How's that been going with the fishing now? That they're kind of this next phase of their life. Are they kind of uh, taking a break on fishing, or what does that look like? Oh, definitely taking a break. But yeah, that's okay. I mean, that's yeah, yeah. It's perfectly normal. And if they don't get into it, that's fine. But uh, they're the big thing is they like going outside. They go for walks. My daughter, we have a pond and like a farm, so she just loves walking. Like and where when she wants to relax like she'll take a hike along the trail walk along the pond with her dog and as long as they're interested in like getting and seeking nature and going outside then it's been successful yeah what's your uh what's your best dad tip I, you mentioned 14 year old daughter my daughter is going to be 11 pretty soon and i'm like scared <laughs> scared <laughs> about the next few years like what what would be your best advice to be or other dads out there oh man i don't know just just yeah just it's tough <laughs> it's tough hang I, in there to be honest with you, I don't know if I even have any good advice. It's just, yeah, it's just, to be honest with you, what girls were doing and the way they're dressing right. today versus when I was in school. Like, totally. It's different. I, I, I'm, I'm just floored. I, I just, I know. Yeah. 
I know. That's, <laughs> I hear you. I know. We could, we'll have to save that and just leave it at that. That's good. Um, yep. I'll let the mom take care of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let mom take the lead on that. So a couple other random ones, then we'll take it out of here. So uh, hoops, you know, basketball, that was like my sport yep. too. I can't remember. So what was your, your tall, how tall are you? I'm 6'3". Yeah, you're 6'3". Yeah. So what was your position? I was, uh, I was, I, I was a center, but I could have been easily like a small forward. But yeah, yeah, right, I, right. I, I really played ball. I, I love basketball. Yeah, you did. And was this like a high school thing mostly? And or did you high school, that? high school basically. And then uh, I wasn't great, but I was good enough to get like a, a partial scholarship for a, a D two school. Oh, and wow. then um, talking to the coach at the university, yeah, uh, he just said, "Well, you know, you're gonna." I was dating my wife at the time, and who, or yeah, who's eventually became my wife, and he's like no girlfriends, like absolutely no girlfriends. Right. Uh, and it's like, ah, no, that's okay. And then there were some other stipulations and just to be honest with you, it got in the way of fishing and right. fishing was, oh, right. fishing was uh, even, even in high school, whether it was basketball or girls, like still fishing was always priority. Like the, nothing took the priority. There of fishing. You go. Uh, so yeah, I, I enjoyed it, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad I got out uh, because if if I continued on with college ball, I, I wouldn't have seen much time uh, for and I, and the program wasn't a great program, so I felt like my time was better spent just fishing the local waters during my college years. What was your greatest mo- basketball moment? Your all of your years of basketball? Do you have one that sticks out like that? Was something I remember? Basically, we were going up uh, against the the state champs. Uh, oh, there, wow. we, we were we were going. Um, uh, they became the state champs, but this was a, a playoff game. But we had um, one of the best ball players. It was a, he was a shooting guard, but he was six three. Uh, just came up, basically was was killing our guys all day long. But we were down by one point. The guy came in, dr- drove the lane, went up for like a fallaway jump shot, and I had I had I had good springs and long legs. I just I went airborne and basically slammed the ball right over his head. Just slammed it right back into his head, rejected the <laughs> ball. Uh, one and then picked up the ball, threw it across the court down the line to a, a teammate of mine. He made the layup and we won the game. So that was like kind of like there you go. That was one of my high my highlights. So that's that was like uh, that's like the the forty five year old guys at the right. local diner talking about the the best days of their life. It's like uh, <laughs> what's his name on that show, Married with Children, right? Al Bundy talking exactly. about his football days. Exactly. <laughs> and, and could you and could you dunk back in the day? Oh yeah, I could dunk. Oh yeah, you could. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. All right. Good. So that's one thing I, I could barely, I couldn't really do. So that's awesome to hear. That's always nice. Um, all right. Well, the final thing is I'm going to talk thread again, back to Togan's, uh I was talking to Justin and he said they just got Vivas thread in. He was talking about some of their material stuff. What's your, what's your tying thread you use when you're tying your fly? Do you use a bunch of different things? Um, I, I like Vivas. Uh, I like Vivas and I still, I use a lot of the uni thread. I still like a lot of the, the colors and the strength of the uni thread. But Vivas is is great. Uh, I, I use so especially in the in the smaller sizes. I've got some stuff I think in like twelve out, fourteen out that I really dig. Yeah, yep, yeah. The thread has been interesting, interesting, right? Because it's come from back in the day to six out, eight out, whatever it was, and now you've got this whatever out right out to these higher levels. Yeah, and is that made? Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's one thing. I, I know we can go on forever, but that's the one thing. Like when it comes to like, you know, I don't. Back in the day, people say if you found something really good in fly tying, just like buy piles of it, piles of right. it. Right. But today, like it just seems like I mean, the materials that we're using keep getting better and better. Like I don't buy because when you start doing that, like all of a sudden you see this new stuff come in, and then you have this old stuff that you're just trying to get rid of. So anymore these days, I just buy the bare minimum of what I need, and just just know that like there's gonna be something like 
two times, three times better coming out next year. Gotcha. And are you tying flies? You, you have an office at the university or are you tying flies in your office? Uh, I, I don't, I don't tie flies. I, I don't now. When I'm at the office, it's, I'm only on, on campus like three days a week. So it's, oh, okay. it, it's business, it, it's, it's business. business, but, but we do have a fly tying where I will tie flies with the students. Like we have a fly tying. So we do entomology. We have, we tie flies for the field trip. So it's basically a fly shop. We have one classroom dedicated to fly fishing. Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Well, uh, just give us a heads up. At, uh, looking ahead now, we're heading into it's May, June, July, kind of summer's coming up. Anything big coming for you? I guess the classes, right? It sounds like clinics, right? Or you're going to be traveling around the West. When does that start? Classes, yeah. I have a tour in Southern California and, you know, Montana and then Michigan. And yeah, I'll be all over and then doing a good bit of uh, workshops and lessons here. And yeah, so life just keeps moving along. Amazing. All right, George, well, I'll leave it uh, at that, you know, until we get on the next one. We'll hopefully get you back on and do another check-in for you. I guess livingonthefly.com is the best place to send people out to? Yeah, and then, yeah, the social media, which I think is uh, Instagram, which is uh, George Daniel Outside. Uh, yeah, you can you can follow me there. I don't tend to eat, especially this time of the year, I don't answer emails as much. i kind of on the, on the water a good bit, and I'm working on some book projects, so I, I've been really negligent in my response on emails. So if you want to kind of figure out what I'm doing, see what I'm doing, probably so, uh, the social media is the, the best way. Okay. And are all those on Instagram? Those are, is that all your photos? Those are your pics? Yep. They're all my photos. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing. It looks like you've got some pro uh, photography. Uh, you got some good stuff going there. I'm trying to. My brother has been, my brother's a good, great photographer. He's been helping me out and uh, just, uh, but I've been working on this for a couple of years, but something I, I really enjoy. So it's just, a, just, yeah, it's a hobby, expensive hobby, but a hobby nonetheless. Right, right. Awesome, George. Well, thanks again for all your time again today, and we'll keep in touch with you, and, and we'll look forward to uh, getting you on, hopefully, uh, down the line. All right. Sounds good, Dave. Thanks for having me back. There we go. Wetflyswing.com slash 467. 467. You can head over there right now. Take a look. Take a look. Take a look. Let's take a look. Take a look at what George has going on right now. Uh, before we get out of here today, Instagram, if you're on social media on Instagram, head over to at wetflyswing, give us a follow and, uh, and ask a question for an upcoming guest. We're asking and uh, answering these questions from uh, the mailbag. We're doing this through Instagram, so check it out right now. Let's do a quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Joel Anderson. Joel Anderson, not Joel, but Joel Anderson. Joel Anderson said, hi, Dave. Was chasing bullies and steelhead when I lived on the West Coast. Now I returned to uh, Alberta, my wife's hometown, Calgary. I'm uh, I'm learning the Bow River and surrounding areas all over again. Started fly fishing. Started fly fishing with an old business partner 20 years ago and building a career raising kids. Took over. Now that the oldest kid has moved out and the COVID pandemic gave me more time to get back into fly fishing and fly tying, I'm loving the challenges and learnings all over again. Been a fan of the pod for a while. Thanks for sharing it with us, Joel Anderson. Joel, this is amazing. This is another great story that definitely I'm going to be thinking about. Uh, COVID, I guess one of the good uh, positives of COVID was something like this right here, right? Got you out, got you back into it. And now you're learning it all over again. So cool. Thanks for the support of the podcast. If you want to get a shout out on this podcast, you can do it very easy. Send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com anytime. And I will give you a shout out and we'll put together an episode and cover that question for you. All right. 
Are we going to have a fun fact and random story today? Are we going to have a fun fact and random story today? Uh, let's see. What do we got? What do we got to work with? We got Joel, Joel, not Joel. We got Joel Anderson. Um, what is he working on? He's talking about the Bow River. Bow River, Bow River Berry. Berry Bow River. That's what comes to mind when I hear Bow River, which is pretty amazing. All right. Let's just leave it there. Let's leave it right there. And, uh, and we're not even going to say another word on that topic leave it there all right if you get a chance please connect with me online and if you are thinking about one of the trips you want to connect with me on a trip you can head over to wetflyswing.com school check out what we have going all right i am getting sleepy i'm getting tired um, i need a beverage because um, i'm kind of feeling parched parched right now so uh so i'm gonna get out of here i uh, hope you are having a great evening Hope you're having a great morning or a great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping in today to check out the podcast. And, uh, and I look forward to talking with you soon. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.